This week, something unusual happened. A settlement worth billions of dollars vaulted out of lowly bankruptcy court and ended up in front of the highest court in the land. Did you expect this settlement with the Sacklers about opioids to go all the way to the Supreme Court? Absolutely not. Brian Mann is a reporter at NPR. He's been following this whole bankruptcy saga. It's all about opioids, specifically how much money the billionaire Sackler family owes to victims of the overdose crisis. The Sacklers famously ran Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin. It's Purdue that filed for bankruptcy here. But when that happened, the Sackler family was able to arrange a side deal. By contributing billions of dollars to treat and prevent addiction, they were able to avoid personal liability for their role getting America hooked on painkillers. The Supreme Court is set to decide, can they actually do that? Historically, the Supreme Court has been reluctant to get involved in bankruptcy cases. But here, to, I think to most people's surprise, they leaned in and they said, you know, we are going to review this case. We're going to use this moment with the Sacklers, with Purdue Pharma as kind of a test case to see if this is really how bankruptcy courts should operate. What does it say to you that the Supreme Court did take it on? What does it signal? I think that we've seen this expansion of bankruptcy power into more and more areas of American life. Let me walk people very quickly through how this can work right now. Let's say that I'm a company and I've been doing something that I think is going to get me in a lot of trouble. What I can do is I can spin off a subsidiary, like a new part of my own company. I can push it into a kind of a new corporate identity. I can dump all of the liability for that wrongdoing into that other sort of entity. And I can then push that into bankruptcy, right? I'm still over here with my billions of dollars, but over there, there's this other thing that I've created that I can push into bankruptcy and essentially create one of these firewalls against any accountability. And Brian Mann says this firewall against accountability is only available to a select few. This is absolutely a way of using bankruptcy to shield people from liability that is only available to the very rich. You've made a pretty strong moral case for the justices examining this practice. But I wonder, what about the victims in the opioid litigation, the people who are reaching this settlement with the Sackler family? Do they want to upend it? Most of them don't. Increasingly, we've seen more and more people saying, enough, you know, we don't want to keep fighting this legal fight. Let's take this deal and let's walk away. Does anyone feel good about this settlement? The short answer is no. The only people who might feel good about it, although there is a $6 billion price tag, are members of the Sackler family. Today on the show, why, no matter how the Supreme Court rules on this opioid case, no one's likely to be happy. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. 
Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The road to this court case was long and winding. The first state to sue Purdue Pharma did so in 2001. By 2019, over a 1,000 lawsuits had been filed. The last time I spoke to Brian Mann, a bankruptcy court in New York had just put together the deal the Supreme Court is now considering. The plan was that the Sacklers would pay a $6 billion settlement, and then they'd be shielded from future litigation. All future litigation, including by people who had not signed on to this agreement. So when we spoke before, I think it seemed clear to most people that this was over, that the Sacklers had won and that they were going to pay up this money and they were going to then walk away. But what we saw was that the U.S. Justice Department and this division of the DOJ that serves as kind of a bankruptcy watchdog, they kept pushing for this. They said, no, we really think this is inappropriate. We think this is a violation of federal law. And so they pushed this to the Supreme Court. This is the U.S. trustee program? That's the U.S. trustee program. And they've really been persistent in saying, we think that deals like this, not just the Sackler-Purdue Pharma deal, but other deals like this, where the wealthy pay in exchange for, for legal protections, they say this is a violation of people's constitutional rights. And some supporters of this bankruptcy deal, including some people who are really harmed by OxyContin, they're really angry at the DOJ. They say this, you know, look, we've all agreed to this. Many of us have agreed to this. We would like for them to step out of the way. And if and if the DOJ does want a pound of flesh from the Sacklers, file criminal charges, take them to court, but get out of the way of our deal. Right. You don't have to take our money. Yeah. Don't take our money. If you think they're drug dealers, charge them with those crimes. Instead, what the U.S. trustee has said is that this is a precedent-setting case it is a clear violation in their view and in their legal briefs of the way that bankruptcy law is supposed to function in America. And they they appealed it to the Supreme Court. And again, what, what really shocked everyone, that was, that was already startling that the, the U.S. trustee did decide to push this to the final you know, court of appeals, which is the Supreme Court. But then it surprised everybody that the justices said yes. When I saw that the justices had had agreed to take on this case, I was shocked. And and most of the legal experts I spoke to were completely taken by surprise. And uh, and so that's what brought us here, is that the justices decided that the, the DOJ had made a strong enough case that this deserved their review. In the simplest terms, what is the Department of Justice arguing? What they're arguing is that federal bankruptcy law simply doesn't give bankruptcy courts this power that unless someone files for bankruptcy 
They cannot be granted these legal immunities, these legal protections. They can't walk away with a clean slate. The distinction Brian is drawing here is really important to the bitterness and controversy surrounding this case. Because Purdue Pharma has declared bankruptcy back in 2019, but the billionaire Sackler family has not. And they're the ones who are going to get legal immunity if the Supreme Court rules this deal can go through. The part here that's controversial is that members of the Sackler family who are not bankrupt, who in fact, they're they're extraordinarily wealthy, they want to have a firewall built around them by the bankruptcy court by paying cash. They're essentially offering a $6 billion cash payment, and in exchange, they want this legal immunity. And And there's a question here whether that's even constitutional, which again is one of the reasons why the Supreme Court has taken this up. The Constitution grants citizens the right to seek redress, the right to go, when when you feel like you're harmed, you can go and sue someone, right? It's one of our basic American rights. And one of the questions here is can a bankruptcy court extinguish that right for individuals without their permission, which is what the Sacklers are asking for here. A lot of people agreed to give up their right to sue the Sacklers. A lot of people wanted this deal to go forward, but there are lots of other people who want to sue them. They want to go to court with the Sacklers and try to see if they can win and get some kind of redress. But what the bankruptcy court is trying to do here is say, no, there's a firewall now around them that avenue is closed to you. And what the Supreme Court is going to decide here is whether that kind of firewall is allowed under the U.S. system of justice. So let's talk about what happened when this case was argued in front of the Supreme Court. Like, first of all, it seemed to me like the whole setup was strange because there were lawyers both representing the Sacklers, but then also representing families of opioid victims. And those two attorneys were kind of arguing the same argument. (laughs) They were both like, we want the settlement to move forward. And that was so notable to me that these people who you would think might be opposed to each other were really working in lockstep in front of the court. Yeah, this case has led to strange bedfellows. You have people who want this settlement to go through, who want some compensation, who want money to go out to communities to help with opioid relief programs, drug treatment programs, they're now aligned in many ways with Purdue Pharma and with members of the Sackler family who, again, arguably created this problem in the first place. And so, yeah, that is that is not just the optics of the situation. That's the reality that you have them, you know, fighting here to have this deal survive and and to have the Supreme Court essentially allow it to go through. How did the justices respond to all this? Well, they asked a lot of the questions that have been asked, you know, throughout. First of all, is this even a power that the bankruptcy court has? Can bankruptcy courts afford this kind of legal protection to individuals like the Sacklers who are not themselves bankrupt? But another big question that was asked over and over again is, Isn't this a tidy and efficient way to solve a very complicated legal problem, right? You have thousands of people filing lawsuits. You have an incredibly complex litigation here. And one of the things justices, sometimes the same justices who were expressing skepticism about the power of the bankruptcy court to do this, they were also acknowledging that maybe this is sort of a superpower that bankruptcy courts could use 
to resolve things that are this thorny and this intractable. And so I think that's going to be one of the things that you see here is not just, you know, will people get this money? Will they get this settlement quickly? But also, will bankruptcy courts be allowed to continue being kind of the the catch-all for for litigation that people can't figure out how to solve in other ways? The justices weren't splitting along ideological lines, right? Like, people on all sides of the spectrum were asking questions, like, from all perspectives is my, is my understanding of how the hearing went down. That's right. One of the things that's really interesting here is that you have a very conservative Supreme Court. They tend to be very pro-business, very pro-corporation, and, and a lot of corporations really support this bankruptcy power. They want to use this bankruptcy power to limit their own liability and their own accountability. But this is also a Supreme Court that has described itself, you know, the, the conservative justice have, have described themselves as sort of originalists, right? They're basically saying if, if Congress hasn't granted a power, if it's not clearly a power that's in the Constitution, we don't think it's a power that exists. And here, what you have is federal bankruptcy courts turning to Americans and saying, we're going to erase your ability to sue. We're going to take away your power to sue through a deal that there's not a super clear congressional action or constitutional provision that gives bankruptcy courts that power. So it's complicated. You also had liberal justices clearly re wrestling with this and wrestling with how to uh, resolve the tension of, of helping communities that need this money, that need funds to pay for drug treatment, to pay for opioid abatement, but also, you know, seeing this as a moment where this family, the Sacklers, could walk away with a kind of get out of accountability card. Uh, and that that's clearly troubling. Hmm. It seemed to me like the lawyers for all sides here, they, they were also there to play hardball. <laughs> like one of the attorneys was quoted saying straightforwardly, like without the release of liability for the Sackler family, this plan is going to unravel and there will be no viable path to any victim recovery, just shutting down like the whole idea. And you had not just that, but you had this implication from lawyers for the DOJ that if the Supreme Court just just like made it known that they weren't in favor of what was happening here, maybe the Sackler family would cough up some more money. I think it's fair to say that the Sackler family has played hardball from the beginning. They have basically kind of held out this carrot, a big pile of cash. You know, at this point, it's $6 billion. And the stick is that if we don't get this deal, if we don't get this immunity from lawsuits, we're going to walk away and we're going to fight this to the bitter end. It could be years, it could be decades before anybody sees a dime. And that may be the case. But what people who want the ability to sue the Sacklers argue is that the reality of a tsunami of lawsuits against the Sacklers personally could lead to all kinds of creative deal making going forward. You know, there could be other hmm. kinds of settlements. And this, in fact, is something that we've seen in other cases. Let me talk for just a moment about Johnson & Johnson. Johnson & Johnson is this really wealthy corporation that's been sued by thousands of people for its talc baby powder, which which many people claim caused their cancer, uh, that there was asbestos in the talc baby powder and it caused their cancer. And Johnson & Johnson 
tried to use bankruptcy court to limit their ability to be sued over this. Their case was thrown out eventually by a bankruptcy court. It was rejected. And almost as soon as it was thrown out, they did cut deals and they did reach settlements. This is what some people argue in the case of the Sacklers. If you give us our day in court with them, either we'll win in court or we'll lose in court or we'll cut deals in court, but we want the chance to do that. We don't want a bankruptcy court to dictate what happens here. When we come back, what happens if the Supreme Court blows this deal up? This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Part of the reason supporters of this settlement are so anxious about the Supreme Court possibly striking it down is that they've already made plans for how to allocate the money. Most of the $6 billion would go to state and local governments and Native American tribes that have been impacted by the opioid epidemic. The plan is to invest in opioid abatement. That could mean drug treatment facilities, foster care for children who've lost their parents, basically programs to ease the ongoing harm of the opioid crisis. Only about $750 million from that pot would go to individual victims and their families, probably a few thousand dollars per person. And while that might not seem like a lot of money, the Purdue plan is one of only a few opioid settlements that sets aside money for individual people. Anyway, that's the argument for the plan. The argument against it is that it turns bankruptcy court into a kind of get-out-of-jail-free card for the rich. And it could set a dangerous precedent moving forward. Imagine in the future there's somebody who is making an unsafe product or doing something to the environment that is really harmful. What they can be thinking the whole time with this bankruptcy tool in their back pocket is, yeah, I might get caught someday for this, but all I'll have to do is create a bankruptcy plan, spend a couple billion dollars, and I'll walk away with a clean slate. And so in the short term, you know, this bankruptcy deal may be a very practical solution that helps people in the opioid crisis. But what some people argue is that on the other side of the ledger, it sets the kind of precedent where a lot of people could do a lot of harm in the future and get away with it. You've said this strategy that the Sacklers used here in bankruptcy court. It's become common with big corporations at this point, and that's part of why the trustee wanted to take this on because this is something they've seen happening and they don't want this huge precedent set that like this is how bankruptcy court works. So if the justices 
did overturn this settlement, what would happen to all the other cases where similar arrangements have been made? Do those still stand? Are they moot? Deals that have been consummated and completed would stand, right? So nobody's going to go back to the Boy Scouts of America or you know, parts of the Roman Catholic Church and unravel those deals. But there are a lot of other cases that are still in process right now. And, and what my sources tell me is that there are a lot of other companies and individuals out there that are essentially queuing up similar bankruptcy strategies. Again, they're very wealthy. They have a lot of money. They're not bankrupt, but they're queuing up similar bankruptcy strategies to the one the Sacklers used here to limit their own accountability in the future. And so if the Supreme Court says no to this deal, it's going to make it a lot harder, a lot harder for others to kind of get in on the action here. And so that's really, you know, what what we're looking to see here is is this going to be this this permanent and and fairly drastic expansion of bankruptcy power or are we going to see kind of uh, the clipping of the wings here? And this is really important to say. Bankruptcy courts have a lot of power. And the reason they've been given that power is because in the past it was limited only to bankrupt entities, right? They could really dictate a lot of what happened once a company or an individual was bankrupt. What we're seeing here is this really fundamental question. What if bankruptcy courts get to use that power for individuals and companies that are not bankrupt? That is a drastic expansion of the role that they'll play in the American justice system. And again, that's why the Supreme Court decision here is going to be really, really significant. Considering this deal, it seems to me like there are a couple of schools of thought. Like there are people who say the Sacklers are getting away with murder, basically. They're they're getting off cheap for all this damage that they've done with the opioid crisis. And then there are people who will tell you, like, the perfect shouldn't be the enemy of the good. And it's time to solve this because there isn't ever going to be a perfect solution. What do you think after years spent considering all this? I have to say that having covered the opioid crisis, I don't think that there are perfect solutions here. I don't think there's a clean ending for any of this. I also don't think that the Sacklers are the beginning and the ending of corporate America's responsibility here. I, I, you know, what we've seen over the last couple of years is they've really become kind of the poster children of the opioid crisis, you know, mini series and books. And they really are the public face of what caused the opioid crisis. And I don't think that's entirely fair. I think that there is a lot of blame to go around regulatory agencies, government, you know, so many people had a hand in creating this and and have a hand now in perpetuating it. In terms of what the right solution is for holding members of the Sackler family accountable, I, I can't voice an opinion about that. What I can say is that I think when this is all said and done, the moral pain that the victims have been put through is extraordinarily high. I went to a gathering a couple years ago where people harmed by Oxycontin were finally able to speak directly to members of the Sackler family. It was a video conference that was done as part of this bankruptcy process. It was very strange. And again, this is not what bankruptcy courts are normally designed to do. 
watching people speak directly to the Sacklers and voicing their pain and voicing, you know, just how much harm these people felt the family had done to them, it was excruciating. And, uh, and in many ways, long after the money is settled and the law is settled, you know, that's what will remain for me is listening to those families talk about how much they've lost. Brian Mann, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you. Brian Mann reports on addiction for NPR. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. <laughs>